You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text is from Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put the Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if, every, if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Good morning. It's great to, uh, to be here with you this morning. Um, as Gretchen just read for us and Aaron said, we're going to be starting into chapter 3 of Colossians uh, this morning. And um, the, the text that we read, there's so much goodness in there uh, that we couldn't cover it all in, in one sermon. So I think probably for the first time we're, we're going to have two sermons on the same passage. Uh, I'm going to preach this week, and Aaron's going to preach next week, uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but hopefully uh, today I'm going to kind of stay a little bit higher level. I definitely won't be able to get into all the details found in the passage, but um, a little more conceptual and, and definitely focusing on the first couple of verses that we find in Colossians. And uh, as Aaron follows up, uh, he'll be able to, to dig in deeply into um, all the riches that we find here in this text. Uh, but before we jump into chapter 3, I did want to just take a, a very small step back to look at the very end of chapter 2 uh, that Patrick uh, preached on last week, just to kind of make sure that we have set the tone for what we're looking at in chapter 3. At the very end of chapter 2, um, 
Paul condemns these false teachings that were being spread in the church, and he calls them, uh, he, he kind of labels them as self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. And he says that these things are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So what we could take from this is that the goal of the false teachings that were being spread in the church were in some ways to help accomplish a moral improvement or a moral transformation, right? They, they were not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So their goal was trying to curb self-indulgence. And Paul is setting them up as, well, they're actually of no, they have no value in doing those things. And in the ancient world, the world that Paul inhabited, uh, they talked about this a lot, and they used it in terms of the language of virtue and vice. The ultimate goal in Paul's world was to become a more virtuous person. So things like curbing self-indulgence were of, of high value to the people at, at Colossae. And I think we want to pay close attention to Paul's reasoning and arguments throughout this. So the idea of becoming a more virtuous person is not necessarily counter to the gospel or to Paul's ministry. Uh, One of the, the early church writers, Gregory of Nyssa, he says that whoever pursues true virtue participates in nothing other than God because he himself is absolute virtue. So it's not that Paul is saying we should not attempt to become virtuous persons. No, that that can be in line with the Christian teaching. But what Paul is saying is that these self-made religions, these severe treatment of the body, they're not in any value of helping you to become a more virtuous person. And what he's putting in contrast to that is Christ himself. I, I think this is really the entire letter of Colossians, what Paul is Addressing. Remember, we've already read things like Christ died in order to present us blameless before God. That the goal of Paul's ministry is to present the Christians as mature in Christ. That he, we, last week we talked about we are filled with the fullness of God. This whole idea that, that we are striving towards that. We talked about um, how Christ, in, in the, his person, who he is, fully God, fully man, that the goal or the end for which all human beings were created were to be united to this life of God. Or we could say, with Gregory of Nyssa, that the goal is to participate in absolute virtue, to become truly virtuous as God is virtuous. Paul is putting Christ against these local heresies. So, what we can take from this is by saying that these local teachings are not effective for curbing self-indulgence, we can say that Christ is effective for curbing self-indulgence. That's the argument that, that Paul is setting up and what he's jumping into in chapter 3. He's not simply saying here that Christ himself is absolute virtue, though we must say that he is. He is saying that there is a way in which us, in Christ, can become virtuous as well. Whereas severe treatment of the body or self-made religion cannot curb self-indulgence, Christ can. And this is good news for us, is it not? We're not slaves to our sin. We're not slaves to our upbringings. 
or to our genetics or to our personalities or our dispositions. In Christ, we can be free from the things that he lists here. We can be free from sexual immorality, from greed, and from anger. Now, this really is kind of part two of the sermon that I preached a few weeks ago, and I know that you probably have not given it a thought since then, but in my heart, I'm going to believe that all of you have been stewing on it for weeks, thinking really hard. Thank you, David. And wondering to yourself, you know, okay, I get it. The goal is to grow in Christ, to become like him, to become virtuous, to participate in God. But how do we do that? How exactly does that that happen? And I think this is exactly what Paul is tackling in our passage today. But he does it for a way that, to me at least, was, was very surprising, and I think in a way that is very relevant for us in our time today. I, I think that every time or every culture, every group of people has its own version of what it means to be a truly virtuous person. And I think if we're not careful, that version of being a virtuous person, whatever it may be, can creep its way into the church and, and cause us to take our eyes off of Christ being the only one as effective for making us virtuous. Just like the Colossian church, I think today we have our own heresy, as it were. And what I think it is, the most virtuous thing that you can be today is to be true to yourself. I, a couple weeks ago, got to go to a, a conference for work, and it was a big conference where we had tons of speakers come in, and it's all about becoming a better leader. Uh, it was a sales conference. So it was all about how to sell better. And, and the one phrase that was repeated again and again and again from, from people of top companies around the world, from Oracle and Zoom and Microsoft coming in and talking to us, they all talked about being your authentic self. It's kind of the new lingo. This is the key to being successful in business, is to, is to be your authentic self, to bring your true self to work and be able to live, live that out. I think we also see this in, in the talks of gender identity in our culture today, right? The idea that is that you have to be what you feel inside. That's what's most true, and you need to orient your entire life, including your physical body, to align with what you feel is true inside you. That's what's most virtuous to our culture. Now, I know this may surprise some of you, but I'm not the most, like, hip person. And uh, I think it's been around for several years now, but for whatever reason, in the past few weeks, I've come across this idea again and again of manifesting. Anybody familiar with this? Uh, So... I I guess it came from a book and, you know, Oprah talked about it. So, of course, it blew up and became this crazy thing. But I I started looking at it and there are YouTube videos out there about manifesting and there's just millions and millions and millions of views. And essentially, it's this idea that you conceive of something in your head that you want to, to be true. And by doing that and by focusing on it, you can manifest that. You can make that come true in your life. And so you'll hear athletes when they win a game, they're like, I manifested this, you know. Um, And when someone accomplishes their goal, well, this is what I manifested, right? It's this idea that, that what's inside of me, 
I can make true in the world. I can, my true self, what I want to be, I can make true in the world. And this, I think, is in our time what is labeled as being the most virtuous thing. So I want to talk through this passage with the idea of the self, the true self, because I think it's helpful in our time. So I'm going to talk through this passage in three parts. I'm going to talk about the self and you. I'm going to talk about the self and Christ. And I'm going to talk about the self and others. So starting with the first three verses here, the self and you says, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul starts this passage and it's all about Christian living. The exhortation that he starts with is to seek the things above. And I think he just further clarifies that by, by following it up and saying, set your mind on things above. And to me, this re- reveals actually a profound truth about our actions. Because Paul goes on in this verse to talk all about actions, yet he starts with the mind. Much of our Christian teaching about virtue and vice, about good and bad or right and wrong, however you want to uh, say that, we, we affirm these things. We, we say that there are some things that are bad, there are some things that are good, and we strive to do the good things and not the bad things. Like That's a, a, a normal Christian teaching. But if we stop and, and ask why, we often are met with simple answers. Uh, usually, this comes down to things like, well, you know, bad things get punished, and good things get rewarded. And that's why we do good and not bad. But this is maybe good for behavior modification, uh, but it doesn't really change our character, right? It also turns the Christian life essentially into like a pragmatic form of karma. (laughs) You do bad, you get punished, you do good, you get rewarded, so let's do good to get rewarded. Now, Some people might go a bit deeper in this and they'll talk about spiritual habits and how doing certain things habitually over time eventually sink down deep and change you. And and this does get us closer to the truth, but I think it still misses a bit and leaves a bit to be desired. Again, the question can be raised of, is that truly a change of who you are or is it just habituation? Habits can become that. They, do, they become habitual and end up losing their meaning. You know, how many people have we met throughout our lives who habitually go to church every Sunday because that's what you're supposed to do, but it actually has no impact or change in their life? There's something deeper at play when we're talking about living a virtuous life. When we act... If we were to stop and ask why we did a particular thing, it often would say, well, we did it because we desired it, right? We act because we wanted to do something, or I didn't want to do something, or I wanted something to happen. So we act because of a desire, and oftentimes we'll stop right there. But if we go another step deeper, what we realize is that what we desire is actually something that we have imagined for ourselves. 
We all have an image of ourselves in our minds that we are attempting to enact or to bring to life. This passage says, your life is hidden with Christ. We all have a hidden life inside of us. That, we, that every action we do is a desire to bring that image to life. Just an example of this. If you were at your job, say, and you wanted to be the top performer for your, your work. Well, first you would desire, first you would say, I want to be the top performer. You would see yourself as a top performer and say, ooh, I like that vision, right? I like seeing myself as a top performer. I like seeing myself getting that bonus, getting that award, that recognition, whatever it may be. So you, you see it, you desire it, and then you take the appropriate steps to, to act, to make that happen, to become the top performer. This is something that happened in my own life, and throughout this uh, sermon, I, I want to kind of layer in a, a personal story for me that this passage has been so helpful in, in helping me uh, see and understand. When, when I came down to North Carolina, we came here for seminary uh, up in Wake Forest, and um, early on, one of my first classes in seminary, I took with a professor um, who I thought was like it. It was the best class I'd ever taken. I loved everything about him. And, and I, I saw myself as being like him. It, it changed everything. It was like, all right, this is what I want to do. I want to be like this. So what I did is I started to take those actions to become like him. I took every single class that he taught at seminary. I started attending the church that he was the pastor of. I went through pastoral training with him. I led a small group under his leadership. I did all the steps right to be able to come like him because I, I saw this image. I could picture it in my mind and, and I could see myself being like that and I desired it. And so I took all the right steps to bring that about. Every act or non-act that we take, we are attempting to incarnate or to, to manifest some image of ourselves. But the question is, what is that image of the self that we are incarnating? Paul kind of gives us some confusing things here. If we take Paul seriously, and I think that we should, or rather we must, there's kind of a logical problem with this passage, right? It says, you have been raised, okay? You have been raised, but then it says, seek the things that are above. Well, if you have been raised, then who is the one seeking what's above? If you have been raised, you are up here, then who is the one who is seeking Right, this, this comes out a little bit stronger in, a, in sort of a parallel passage that Paul gives in Galatians chapter 2 where he says, you may know this, I have been crucified with Christ. Right? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But then he says, the life I now live, I live through faith. What? I have been crucified. I no longer live, but the life I now live what? There's two eyes. What's going on there? One is dead and one is living, right? How can I no longer live and I also now live by faith? According to Paul, we actually have two selves, 
not four, sorry, only two. (laughs) In this passage, he refers to the old self and the new self. What I will refer to this as is the false self and the true self. Right? We all have a hidden image of, of ourselves in our mind. In, in reality, it's probably countless images of ourselves that we are enacting. But what we have to determine is, is that a false self? Is that an old self? Or is it a true self? And how do we determine this? This is what Paul is saying, that we must set our minds and our thoughts on things that are above. We can only enact or incarnate our true selves if we desire if we desire it and we can only desire our true selves if we can imagine it so we have to set our minds on things that are above where we can imagine our lives with Christ and therefore desire that life he is clearly cr- contrasting here things above with things on earth If you, your true self, is truly raised with Christ and your life hidden with him in God, you will never be able to perceive your true self in earthly things. In other words, you cannot know your new self via your old self. When your mind is fixated only on earthly things that you can perceive with your physical senses, you will only be able to live out those physical false things. Your true self cannot be known through what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world. He gives those here later in the passage where he talks about Jew and Greek, circumcision and uncircumcision, slave and free. These are elemental earthly principles. And you cannot know your true self through those things. And I think this is the threat that is, is attempting to creep itself into the church. This idea of knowing yourself through these elemental things. We confuse the physical realm with ultimate reality. Now, I wish it weren't so, but this year, again, is an election year. And I can't tell you how many times I've already seen the statement of, you cannot be a true Christian if you vote for X. Right? We, our world, the elementary principles of, of our world that we live in is Democrat and Republican. And we think that you can only find your true self in one or the other, whichever it may be. Or one that drives me a little bit crazy is this fixation on biblical manhood and womanhood. We have a, a good passion to correct what the culture is trying to change about manhood and womanhood. But we've actually doubled down on the false image of being bound up in the elementary principles of the world. You cannot know your true self through being a certain type of man or a certain type of woman, even if it's a biblical one. You can only know your true self in Christ. You, your life, the true life, the true you, is hidden with Christ. It is above. It is not in the things of earth. We cannot be fixated only on the physical things of this earth to know ourselves. We have to set our minds on the things that are above so that we can imagine, desire, and enact our true selves. 
So that's the self in you, that you actually have two selves, a false self and a true self. You can only know your true self in Christ. So we'll move to the self and Christ. The next verse says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So if your, our true self is hidden in Christ, it is therefore, in a sense, not fully known, right? It is hidden. You can only full, fully know something that you have seen. This is what uh, John says in 1 John 3. He says, What we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, that's, that is Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him exactly as he is. So there is a fullness that is to come to when we will physically see with our eyes what Christ is and we will be like him because we will see him. We will fully know. But right now, we can, we can still know. We can still uh, attempt to understand this life, this true self that's hidden in Christ. And there are three types of knowing that I think is helpful for us to understand. There is a, the first type of knowing is a conceptual knowing. That is, in your mind. Can you conceive of it in your mind? You can know something within the, your mind. There is experiential knowing. That is, you can know something by actually physically experiencing it. And then there is actual knowing, which is the, the final, true, complete sense of knowing. The seeing and this, I think, is the great beauty of the Christian story. It's that in the middle of history, Christ did something that accomplished things that will take place at the end of history so that we can now live every moment of our history differently. One author says, In Christ, a person is already in substance what he is to become in experience. So in Christ, what has been accomplished is the actual part of knowing has been accomplished in substance. You have died. You have been raised. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That has been accomplished. It is actually true. And we can conceptually know that, right? We can know that in our minds. We, we can set our minds on those things and know it. So the only thing that's left is the experiential. This is what Paul is getting at is that we are to take that actual knowing, the conceptual knowing, and now we need to experience it in our lives. We need to incarnate that knowing in our lives. That is how our true self comes to be revealed. And in a paradoxical way, this is done through death. Right? The death of Christ was the pinnacle of the revelation of who he was. And in the same way, death is the means by which we give space for Christ to appear in our lives. Right? He says, put to death what is earthly in you. Literally, what it says is kill what is earthly in you. Death now has become a tool which we use to give space and room for Christ to be manifest. For Christ to to appear. To continue my story, as I began to see that this uh, 
image that I had created of, of my professor, of trying to become exactly like him. Obviously, it was a false image, right? It was not in Christ. It was a, an image of an, of an earthly man and his success in ministry. It was a false image that I had begun to create. And as I began to, to see that, a painful truth was revealed, that this false image that I created actually needed to be killed. It warranted destruction. By God's grace, none of the things that I had attempted to incarnate had come true. I barely finished seminary. I struggled in ministry. My mentorship was a a pretty terrible experience, and I had exactly zero prospects of full-time ministry after school. And this failure was painful. I became angry. I became bitter. I became depressed. And it revealed a very ugly truth about our false image is that it really was all about me and never about Jesus. I expected God to reward me for all my efforts. I expected people to follow me and listen to me because of my training and my knowledge. I expected my family to suffer for my success. And I expected myself to succeed. That verse we looked at to begin with of back in chapter 2 of 23 that says uh, these things were not effective in curbing self-indulgence. There's a question of how to best translate that verse. And, and one way you can translate it is that these things actually only produce self-indulgence. And this is what I learned that images, false Images, false selves produced from earthly things will only result in earthly things. And those are the things that must be destroyed because they are not true. They are not from Christ. And this is why we must look above and not to the things of earth. This false image had distorted my view of God. It had distorted my view of others. It had distorted my view of myself. A lot of these insights that I had about this passage today come from an article by a scholar, uh, Jordan Daniel Wood. And I have a few quotes from him here uh, as we go through this. And one, he says, is that true incarnation or the perfection of virtue requires the destruction of false incarnation, of the false self. Why? Because as we kill the old man and put on the new, we will come to recognize Christ in us the one true image of all who wants to become incarnate in all things and make all things true. God does not want you to live in your false self, in your old self. It is not, it's not true. He wants the true new man, the true image, the true self to be known. That's, that's his will for you. And what that takes is, is killing those false images, those earthly things, those fleshly things. Down in verse 11, in verse 11 um, it says that, you know, in Christ, uh, these things aren't so. In verse 11, he says, um, in Christ, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, but Christ is all and in all. And the translation here is a little bit unfortunate. It actually doesn't say in Christ in the text. What it does say is that it kind of says here or 
in the place where the old self, the false self has been killed and the new self has been put on, in that place, Christ is all and in all. So whereas we started this passage with our lives being hidden with Christ in God, above where we need to set our minds, towards the end now, Paul has moved where Christ has now descended to fill all things. And that's the goal of the virtuous life. It's not simply to just be good for goodness sake. But it's that so in your virtue that you are living out, Christ is filling all things in you and through you. Again, uh, Wood says, the spiritual life is the struggle to see true and false images for what they are. Then to incarnate the true image, which is Jesus, through ourselves in word and work, in cooperation with the grace of the Spirit, we give birth to the word in us and as us to become manifest in Christ's manifestations. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. I love that you also will appear with him. So often I think that we, can, we think that God is actually in the business of erasing you. But he's not. He's interested in you appearing with him. You, your true self, appearing with him. I, when I was in college, I went to a, a church and we had a Sunday school teacher there. It was kind of a larger church with a big college ministry. And I loved this man. He was great. But for whatever reason, one semester he got on this kick where he would talk about the Christian life is a life being possessed by the Holy Spirit. And he would talk about it in the same way that like people are possessed by evil spirits. We need to have the same thing, but with the Holy Spirit. And it's this idea of being completely overtaken by God. And I probably couldn't have put words to it then, but even then I was kind of like, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. I don't know. And I, this finds its way into to many things. So there are many people here in our church who like to send me songs uh, to, to sing on Sunday. Kevin in the back, I see your hand. Uh, and... And recently, uh, Brandon gets a second call out two Sundays in a row. It's pretty famous around here. Uh, he sent me a, a song, and, and it's a good song. I, nothing against the song. It's very catchy. I like listening to it. But the, the chorus is, is literally, take over me, singing to the Lord, take over me. But I don't think that God is wanting to take over you. It's not about completely overwhelming you and erasing you. It's that there is a true you that is hidden in Christ that he wants to reveal alongside of Christ. Even the songs that we sing on Sunday that I, I like, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And in one sense, that's absolutely true. But in another sense, it should be, yet not my false me, but my true me manifests with Christ. But you know, that doesn't really like work in a song. So I get it. But it's not about erasing the I. Remember, Paul says, the life I live, I live through faith in Christ. There's still an I. It's just the true I 
And that's only revealed when Christ is revealed. We must enact in our lives our true selves hidden in Christ. We kill what is earthly in us to make room for Christ to become manifest and thereby our true selves manifest with him in glory. But it's not all about me and Jesus. Paul, at the end of this passage, turns towards the community. So I want to just close with the self and others. If we just carefully look at these verses 12 through 17, notice the amount of times that it, it calls out one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and teaching and admonishing one another. At the end, it is truly about the I, the true self, being brought to bear so that we can then also encourage one another. And I think this is helpful. Uh, there's a, a scholar, John Barclay, he wrote an article about this that I've just, it stuck with me and I found it very helpful, is that in the Christian life, we definitely understand that we should not be selfish, right? We're all, we're all pretty clear on that. We should not be consumed only with the self and selfish. But oftentimes what we do then is we just think, well, we should be the opposite, which is selfless, right? We should think absolutely nothing of ourselves, erase ourselves, and think only of other people. And he he says we want to nuance that a little bit, and what he coined is what he called self-with. Self-with. So instead of being selfless, it's about bringing your true self to be with others. It's not about losing yourself, but it's about bringing yourself to be with others. Again, being with one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, teaching one another. We are all doing this together. And Paul, he says, when he says, let the peace of Christ rule, he says, to which you were also called in one body. The body, which is the church, all of us combined. And there's this beautiful thing in theology that was coined by Augustine that's called the totus Christus. It's not a good sermon unless you have a little bit of Latin. The totus Christus, which is, which he says is Christ is understood in some ways as the whole Christ, totus Christus, in the fullness of the church, that is head and body in whom we are each members. So, we, we've already read in Colossians how Christ is the head of the church, right? And so what Augustine is saying is that not only is Christ under, to be understood as simply the head, but he is also understood to be, to be known in the body, the head and the body together. Him and the church together represent this whole Christ or total Christ. And he gets this from uh, 1 Corinthians Uh, chapter 12, which says, for just as the body, Paul talking about the human body, is one but has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into the body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. Again, no matter what your earthly elementary principles are, we are all one in this body together. So what this means is that you as individual members of the body, as you manifest Christ in your life, as you incarnate Christ in your life, your true self, 
to the life of those around you, we are, you are all participating in manifesting the whole Christ, the total Christ. And I think this is the only way that we, can, that we really should bear with one another and forgive one another and admonish one another. So to round out my story, I had created this false image of myself. I realized how, how, how terrible it was and how it had created all these things in me that needed to be killed. And what it resulted in was a really bad spot in my life. Coming out of seminary, to be quite frank, I nearly lost everything. I nearly lost my faith. I nearly lost my family. I nearly lost myself. It was an incredibly rough time for me. And a lot has happened since then, uh, let alone COVID, which completely changes my configuration of time. There were so many things that happened in the years since then. But looking back and discerning some of the things that have helped me, I can say without a shadow of a doubt that being part of this community for the past three years has been so vital to the Spirit's work in my life. There have been countless times where you all pursuing this virtuous life have manifested Christ to me and my family, have spurred us on to a greater experience and knowledge of the whole Christ. And I love how Paul ends this, how I will end it. Of whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm so thankful for this church. And it's a fitting summation of all that we've learned in Colossians so far. Everything we do, word and deed, in his name, giving thanks through him. Through him. The whole thing is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have created an actual truth that we have died, that we have been raised with Christ, that we are seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father, that our lives, our true lives are hidden there. We pray, God, that you would help us to now not only conceive of that life, but to experience that life, that we would put to death the earthly things in us, that we would set our minds on those realities above, that Christ would be able to have room in our lives to appear, that we, our true selves, can appear with him, that, we, that can be used then to serve one another in compassion and gentleness and humility, in love and unity and peace. That the, the peace of Christ, the love of Christ, the word of Christ would dwell and rule among us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.